Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament readings from Psalms, chapter 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit faints. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord, I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. The New Testament reading is from the book of John, chapter 1, the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning. Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig, by the way. Uh, this is such a fun time to live in New Haven with all sorts of new folks coming in. So if you are new to the area, welcome. We have a, a lunch later if you'd like to chat more or wonder what in the world I was talking about or have any questions about our church, you are welcome here. I wanted to start off by simply asking, do you have a picture or an ideal of the way to be a Christian? Do you have maybe a favorite saint that you have read about, maybe a role model, maybe it's even not that descriptive and you're not even aware that it's defining what you value, but is it, is it like Mother Teresa? Is that, is that the, the goal? Is it, what is it? Is it maybe more of like a theologian, has all the answers, can explain everything, really smart? Is that the ideal Christian? Is it someone who, I don't know, is kind of Buddha adjacent? Like always calm, always peaceful, never riled, never gets upset. Is that what it means to be a Christian for you? I want you to think about that. Think about what, what really is that significant picture for you and how much does it control you? Because I want to tackle what I think is, is for a lot of us the picture which is kind of Buddha adjacent maybe, or, or really Stoicism, if you know what that means, this ancient Greek philosophy that we kind of understand to mean just grit your teeth and bear it. Don't worry about how you're feeling. Don't worry about your pain. A Christian is someone who doesn't complain, does their job, gives glory to God, and moves on. Is that what it means to be a Christian? Well, if it is, our psalmist is a pretty horrible Christian. Because our psalmist certainly does not do that. This psalm is really quite incredible. We are in this mini-series of the psalms having finished the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John gives us a great picture of how this psalmist really gets answered but we want to learn from Psalm 143 because he has not only an incredible, incredible relationship to God, but he is also very, very aware of his pain, of how he feels. J.C. Ryle is a famous theologian, and he said, a Christian is actually marked by two things, inner warfare and inner peace. We often assume just the latter, that it's about inner peace, but hopefully we'll see that it is not just that. Let's pray. God, we do praise you for this day. We praise you that you have set it apart, that you would be glorified, that we would gather as your people. Speak to us now. Speak to us through your word, by the Holy Spirit. May you reach us where we need to be reached, whether that means chiseling away at the hardness of our hearts, or that means comforting and being gentle to those who are broken. Lord, we do ask that you would be among us by your word in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, we're looking at this psalm, and, and it is a prayer, and we're going to be sort of talking a lot about prayer, but I don't want you to think that that's just all we're talking about. Prayer is also always a, a kind of microcosm of the Christian life, and also can be a microcosm of our Christian community. If you tell me how you pray, I'll tell you what your faith is like, uh, sort of thing. Uh, but we are looking at a prayer and what it means to wrestle with God. I want to first look at how he is basing his plea. What is the basis of his plea? How does he even dare to think that God would care or listen? Maybe some of us think God is far too busy. I remember being told this sometimes. Don't worry, God, about your small things. He's got, you know, tornadoes to clean up and fires to heal. It's a very small view of God. We want to look at what is the basis of the psalmist plea, and it simply is who God is. It is God's character. He does not forget who he is dealing with. What do I mean by that? We see it all over. Starts off first, verse 1. Lord. In the Hebrew, it's actually, it starts with Lord, not here our prayer, Lord. Lord is the first word. That divine name, Yahweh, however it was said, this promise that God would be with his people, he is just falling upon the Lord. Lord, hear my prayer. That's where he starts. In your faithfulness, in your righteousness, hear me. In the fact that you do everything right, the fact that you are trustworthy, let that be the basis of what you are going to do, how you are going to react. The psalmist is saying those things in verse 1. Verses 8 and 12, verse 8, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. He just wants to hear who the Lord is, what he has done, that his love does not waver, that his fidelity does not end. Let me hear of your steadfast love. Steadfast love mentioned again in verse 12. In your steadfast love, cut off my enemies. We'll come back to that. That doesn't seem very loving to us. Verse 11, this may be the most surprising basis of his plea. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. What does that mean? For your name's, for the sake of your own glory, for the sake of your own identity, for the sake of your own reputation, hear me. The psalmist knows that he cannot come based on who he is and based on what he has done. So you get this picture of he is just falling before the Lord saying, do it for yourself because you are full of love and glory and truth. That is maybe strange to us because in all these instances, he's telling God precisely who he is. Presumably, if God is this great, he already knows this. 
Yes, of course. Prayer is telling God what he already knows. And if you've ever been in any kind of romantic relationship, hopefully you have told that person what they already know, something like, I really enjoy being with you, or I really like you, or maybe even I love you. And they, their response should not be, yeah, I already know that. <laughs> it's not about new information here. It's something like a relationship, what we have here in the Psalms. Tell God who he is, because that certainly is good for us. If you notice, he doesn't ask for anything precisely until verse 9. Deliver me. He does ask to be heard. He asks certainly to be heard. But he doesn't really get to his specific need until verse 9. Because he's so caught up in who God is. How often do we forget who we are dealing with when we pray? And so in our perception, we are bigger than God. It's sort of our identity that dominates our prayer, right? You're so caught up in what's going on in your life, what you need, that you forget who God is and what he has done. Verse 2, the psalmist is very aware of who God is and maybe is a little scared. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So he's just told God that he is righteous, that he is perfectly just. And it feels like he's saying, don't be perfectly just to me right now. And that's really a tension throughout the Old Testament. You don't see a perfect resolution until the cross. So we can really say all of these things because of Jesus. God is perfectly just because he has perfectly punished our sin in Jesus. So we can say, don't enter into judgment on me because I've already been judged in Jesus. You certainly are just, Lord. Be just now. I would encourage you to ask how you can learn from this part of the prayer. And maybe, maybe throughout this whole psalm, we just need to repeat the words of the psalmist. That's how we first start to learn. I don't know how to pray. I'm slothful. I'm lethargic. I don't know who you are really, God. Just read the Psalms. Just say what the psalmist says, and maybe your heart will catch up. Let me see the fact that you are righteous. I struggle to believe that. So the basis of his plea is very, very obviously God. Let us not forget who we are are dealing with the Lord of heaven and earth. But I want to spend the bulk of our time in not just the basis of our plea, but the nature of our plea. What does it look like? How does he come to God? This is a really important question because there's this horrible stereotype of Christianity that we have to clean ourselves up 
get our act together, and then we can come to God. Or then we can come to church. And of anything, of any other religion or philosophy, it is certainly Christianity that should be the opposite of that. That's not how you need to come to God. And that certainly is not what the psalmist does. He is coming with his full self, bringing his turmoil with him. If anything, the doors of the church should encourage you to bring your full self. Where do I see that? Well, I see it in all of the different ways that he describes his emotions and his pain. He doesn't just say, hear me, God, I'm hurting. It's almost like he's, he's so aware of himself. He's, he's like studied his heart and his emotions. His, his pain, is, he's so specific. I would encourage you to be specific in your prayers. What do, I, what do I mean? So he is one who needs mercy. He is pursued. He is crushed. He is sitting in darkness. His spirit faints. His heart is appalled. It's like he's, he seems overwhelmed in what's going on. His soul is thirsty. He is afraid. He is afraid of death. He is afraid of his enemies winning. He is afraid of God abandoning him. He is lost. He's lost and says, teach me the way I should go. Make me know the way. Lead me. His soul is troubled, in need of a refuge. God is often a refuge in the Psalms, and you don't need a refuge if you're not in a storm. And if you don't know you're in a storm, you're not going to look for a refuge. If you don't know you're in a storm, you're not going to look for a refuge. He is very, very aware. He is specific. I can't tell you how helpful this has been to me throughout my life, a kind of dialogue with the Psalms. And if we read something that maybe we don't feel right now, my heart is appalled. I'm sitting in darkness. Well, let that be an opportunity still to dialogue with the Psalm. Tell me where I, show me where I get appalled. Show me where I feel dark. What does that tell me about who I am and what my faith is with you, God? We can have a dialogue with these words. We can meditate on them. This is how we can draw closer to the Lord. I put a quote in our bulletin on page 11 that I think gets at this pretty well. It's from a book called The Cry of the Soul, which some of you have heard me quote before. Struggling with emotions is not a matter of solving problems with a little more information and practical know-how. Man, I wish it was. I really, I really used to think it was. I thought it was. I could just, you know, your feelings are wrong, so just forget about them, move on, here's what you can do. But it's, it's not how it works. We are not machines that can be repaired through a series of steps. We are relational beings 
who are transformed by the mystery of relationship. We are radically disposed to idolatry, illusion-making, and attempts to secure our lives without bowing before God. Our core problem is not a lack of information, it is flight and rebellion. Therefore, if we view difficult emotions as problems to be solved, we will end up looking for answers that will work rather than pursuing relationship with God, regardless of immediate outcome. A determination to resolve our emotional struggles inevitably subordinates God as a servant of our healing rather than a person to be praised. Rather than focusing on trying to change our emotions, we are wiser first to listen to them. All emotions, including the darker ones, give us a glimpse of the character of God. took me a long, long time to understand and appreciate this. I'm still trying to appreciate it. But is this true of you? Do you try to listen to your emotions, listen to what is going on? Now, he's not out of control. He's not. Maybe you have part of your issue, why you don't bring your emotions to God, is you you kind of look down on people who are so emotional because they seem unstable. And so in your self-righteousness, you may look down, but that is not what he is doing. He's not unstable. He has things he can do. He's trying to tell his soul to do them and is telling God what he can do. Verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. Meditate is like, almost like chewing the cud, the way a cow chews his cud. He meditates on what he does, what God has done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. He has things he knows he can do. In our case, if you really don't know what to do, again, just read these words. You don't have to get fancy and spontaneous and creative in your prayers. You can just say these words. I'm so overwhelmed with feeling right now, I don't even know where to start, how to express it. Praise God, he's given us a whole prayer book that Jesus himself used. So I want us to ask, are we afraid to be honest before God? Maybe it's not fear, maybe it's something else. But what prevents us from being honest with God? Do we let maybe our theology get in the way? God already knows. Nothing's going to change anything. God's already predestined everything anyway. What does it matter? That's never, ever used as a justification to not do anything. Certainly not to pray. Maybe we think our emotions don't really matter. We have this gut reaction, and I still have it sometimes, of just just dismiss We just dismiss. Oh, just believe. I know you're going through a really hard time, but just believe. Everything happens for a reason. Don't worry about it. That is cruel. That is cruel. You don't have to dismiss. Faith, Christian faith, does not mean you ignore who you are or the situation you are in. 
It's not equivalent to being optimistic. And I happened to hear this, uh, this example just this week. Uh, it started from, uh, maybe some of you SOM people have read Jim Collins' uh, Good to Great. I read it many years ago, it didn't, didn't do much for me, uh, probably because I don't know much about business. But then I heard it quote, this example quoted again uh, in a book by Brene Brown. It's called The Stockdale Paradox, and it's based off this admirable admiral who was uh, a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And somebody asked him, who are the prisoners that survived? I'm sorry, who are the prisoners that didn't make it out? What was, why didn't they make it out? And Stockdale says, it's the ones who were optimists. Because they died of a broken heart. Because they were trying to be so optimistic, that they'd say, yeah, we'll just get out by Christmas. Christmas would come. They wouldn't get out. Yeah, we'll just get out by Easter. We'll just get out. And then they couldn't take it. And then this admiral says, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Brown, Brown calls it a kind of gritty faith and gritty facts. I think a Christian should be the best at this. We have the resources to absolutely do this because we have no reason to fear any reality, any pain, any suffering. Just imagine if you are trying to be just an optimist who dismisses pain and emotions and you look at the cross, what do you do? What is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ if you dismiss suffering and pain? You can't really think about it at all, can you? What becomes of Christianity if we just dismiss the sin and evil that is around us? It's pointless. No, the psalmist, the psalmist is so honest. He's so brutally honest. He knows that this doesn't necessarily change God, but I think that's the wrong way to think about it. If you think about what it means to have a relationship with God here, we see such a boldly honest prayer. One way to think about our prayers and our whole lives is simply a means of grace. Now, the water was not magical when we baptized Ezra. But God has said, this is a means of my grace to Ezra and to his family and to the whole church. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need any of us, certainly. He can feed us every day by dropping manna from heaven like he did to the Israelites as they were wandering. But he chooses to use farmers and bakers, and whatever else happens with food to feed us. He wants us to be caught up in relationship with him, no matter how bad it feels. He wants us to face 
the reality of where we are at, no matter how bad it is. Because it's not going to change who God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went deeper than we could ever go so that we can pray in the same way, so that our life and our community can have this sort of character of real, emotional, honest. It's really ironic. If you knew me like five years ago, ten years ago, and you heard me preach this, you'd be like, what are you talking about? I didn't know how to answer how are you doing. I needed like multiple choice. Can you give me some feeling words? I don't know. I'm just going to say good. But God wants us to bring our full selves to him. If we bring our full selves to him and we remember who he is, so if we have the basis of our plea being who he is and how we can do it, which is with our turmoil and full selves, I think what we get out of those two things is what I'm calling, at least, a confident desperation or a desperate confidence. That's another characteristic of what I think the psalmist embodies here. By desperate, I mean he knows he has no other hope. He has been brought to a point where everything else he knows will not help him. Verse 6, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Later, Israel would become so distracted. They're trying to rely on other nations and other idols, and they're just lost. But here, David knows, I don't have anywhere else to turn. Verse 7, hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit, who die. If you abandon me, God, I have nothing. Nothing. Now that's a spiritual discipline to feel that way because we feel like we have a lot of other things without God. Don't we? But he wants us to be at a point where we can actually surrender in this way. Another characteristic of his being desperate, though, is that he wants all of his enemies destroyed. Now, we have different enemies than David. We certainly still have enemies, namely sin, or the world, the flesh, and the devil. We certainly have enemies, so how do we pray this? Well, I would like you, if you try to pray this, think about your sin, the sins that you still struggle with. And can you say, Lord, destroy them all? That's a hard thing to say, isn't it? That's a hard thing to say because the problem with our sin is that we kind of like it. We kind of like it. There's some parts maybe of our sin that we don't like. God. Take away the fact that I'm eating too much so that I can look nicer on the beach for summer. So, God, take that sin away. 
we will target. We want God to be like a laser targeting certain sins, the sins that I don't like that really annoy me and give me pain. Take those away. But can you say, destroy them all? Or do you still want to kind of hold them, keep them, flirt with them? He was at a point where he knew all of these enemies are no good for me. They're all no good. Destroy them. Try to say that and notice what God does. He will show you why you still like your sin. And that's a really helpful thing to know. What are the sins that actually I don't think I like, but I actually like? Part of me likes them, another part doesn't like. He's desperate. He's absolutely dependent. He is helpless. Because that's who we all are. That's what it means to be human. To be made in dependence upon God for him. In relationship to him. And yet, he is confident. These, these psalms, these, especially the ones where he's just crying out, confessing his sin, whatever it may be, they're so confident because they know God is the refuge. Did you notice he said, I have fled to you for refuge? He's fleeing. It's this process. He's like fleeing, but he needs him to be a refuge. He knows he can't go anywhere else, so he has to go to God, but it doesn't feel like God is near him. He is so confident, and in fact, we can be even more confident. We can be more confident than the psalmist. This was written before Jesus. The Belgic Confession puts it this way, we should not plead here that we are unworthy if we are in Christ. For it's not a question of offering our prayers on the basis of our own dignity, but on the basis of the excellency and dignity of Christ. Suppose we had to find another intercessor. Are you going to go somewhere else? Who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies? Suppose we had to find one who has prestige and power, who has more than the one who sits at the right hand of the Father and has been given all power in heaven and earth. We can be desperate. In fact, God wants to free us to be desperate. But when we hit rock bottom, we know that there is a rock. There is a rock. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He cast out our sin and the power of the devil that we could actually turn somewhere, that we could actually be saved. That is the hope of the gospel, the sure hope and confidence that we can have. That is the character of our lives and community that we can strive for to be real and honest Brutally so before God, because he does want to destroy all of your sin. But the grace of the gospel says, I can destroy your sin and you 
will live. You will live. You will have new life and it will be better than anything your sin can compare to. Amen. Let's prepare to come to him at his table. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.